I don't know if you think about the end of the world much, uh, but tonight's a good night to think about it as we hit the end of 2P. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We can gather together and we pray that it's an instructive night for us, that uh, you help us to think clearly and deeply about uh, what you are doing, your plans and purposes about the end that is coming and about how people will scoff and mock and put us down for believing in it, but help us to know how to resist them, what you want us to be doing in the meantime. Uh, help us to know how to live in this world with the end coming. Amen. Well, one of the fundamental realities that uh, you only realise and appreciate, I think, the older you get, is just how connected time is. Time, uh, the past, the present, the future, they're all joined and connected together, integrated together. Uh, the order that we do things matters. Uh, you can't roll the jack after you've bowled the ball. It just won't work if you're playing lawn bowls this afternoon. Uh, some things have to come before other things and kids don't get it and so they'll nag and winch and go, why can't we have it now? Because I'm doing the washing up. Yeah, this has to happen because you need the cup before you can have the milk. And ah, kind of thing. Not that I've had that argument several times this week. <laughs> the past, it affects the present. Uh, who we are, where we came from is shaped and determined who we are and where we are now. Even decisions taken way before my time shaped me and shaped the here and now. Uh, the fact that my parents decided that they wanted kids and they were able to do so, that seriously affected my life. Uh, I wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, uh, I may not have been here. The fact that they immigrated to Australia meant that I grew up as an Ocker Aussie boy enjoying burgers and chips rather than an upper-class Englishman from Wimbledon, where my mum's from, uh, eating strawberries and cream and talking in a very different kind of way. Uh, on a larger scale, if electricity hadn't been discovered, we'd still be living in the steam age and maybe all the steampunk futures would uh, be in a reality. Uh, if the Allies had lost Second World War, uh, the world would be different. Our food tastes would revolve around sushi and sauerkraut rather than what they do now, burgers and fries. But it's not just the past that affects the present. The future, at least the future that we suspect will happen or that we're hoping for, uh, dramatically affects who we are and what we do now. Uh, we put superannuation away now because, well, the government tells us to, but because we actually think we're going to make it to retirement. We will get that old someday that we'll be leaving work and we may want to do that, we may not want to do that, but we do it because that's how we're going to pay for the future. Uh, <clears throat> If we were warned that a bushfire was going to come and sweep through Ingleburn tomorrow and destroy everything, that's a future event. That would seriously affect things now. You wouldn't remain sitting here, would you? You'd get home, grab your stuff. Uh, I don't know, what, what would you grab first? The dog? Our dog's pretty old, anyway. <laughs> the kids, maybe? Oh, sorry, for those of us kids. Uh, the snake, did you say? <laughs> yeah, if you've got pet snakes like uh, Jason over here and lizards and things. Uh, yeah, uh, family photos are the things people miss the most. You want to grab them. I think I'd be grabbing my laptop, uh, but anyway. Uh, but if we were warned that that was going to happen, that would seriously influence what we were going to do. If I want to be a millionaire in the future, that'll change the decisions I make. Uh, probably, most certainly, it would change the job I do, uh, or at least the denomination I work for after last week's talk. Um, time is connected. And knowing the past and knowing the future and seeing uh, how they change 
who we are now and what we do is the point of 2 Peter chapter 3. In particular, the certain future that God has in store that he has promised in the past dramatically changes everything now, or at least it should. The first two verses of chapter 3 of Peter, uh, 2 Peter, make his reason for writing this letter absolutely clear. There you are, chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall. Recall what? I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Remember, you've got to recall something. You've got to be reminded. Remember what? Remember the word of the prophets and the apostles. They are what it is so critical to recall. In other words, he's really saying, I want you to remember the gospel. He wants to stir us up by remembering the words of the gospel, words spoken in the past, given by the prediction of the prophets in the Old Testament over hundreds of years, uh, given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he came, and given to us through the apostles as we have it written down in the New Testament. He's already given us a bunch of reasons why we should remember. Chapter 1, remember, knowing Jesus through the gospel, that's what gives us grace from God. It's what gives us peace with God. Uh, The gospel, he said, gives us everything that we need now for life and for godliness. He said that knowing Jesus is what gives us the hope of the future. Uh, Last week we saw in chapter 2 that we saw remembering is what's going to protect us from the lies and deceptions of the false teachers who he says are coming. It's only remembering the truth, clinging to God and his words, knowing them better and better and better, that we won't be led astray into error and be deceived by those who will seek to use you and lead you with them to destruction. And so we are to remember these words that were given to us. We're to study them. We're to learn them. In the words of the prayer, we're to learn, mark and inwardly digest them. And we are to look to the future by them. And there's something that the scriptures say is in the future which should dominate our horizons and should fill our view of what's going to happen from here on, should dominate our thinking. The day which the prophets predicted, which is called the day of the Lord. Uh, We just read Malachi chapter 4 as an example. There's lots of different passages in the Old Testament that talk about the day of the Lord. Uh, Very last chapter of the Old Testament, it's the way the Old Testament ends. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Or the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 15 onwards, according to the Lord's own word, according to Jesus' own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died already. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be 
with the Lord forever. Therefore, he says, encourage each other with these words. Keep encouraging each other that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to to condemn the world, to judge wickedness and also to save his people. We must remember and we must keep remembering these words about the future. And all the more because of what Peter is about to warn us about, the fact that scoffers are going to come. See there in verse 3, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, well, where is this coming, he's promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Scoffers, mockers, people who are always deriding, making light of, poking fun at. It's the ridicule, the the belittling of people uh, uh, believing such a silly idea as Jesus. You're an idiot. Uh, Here's the world's attitude to Christians and to Christ, especially about the judgment day. Now, I don't know if you've ever been mocked or had a hard time for being a Christian. Anyone experience that? Yeah? A few people, a few nods, a few hands. Uh, Even if it's by a random stranger who thinks you're an idiot for believing in Jesus, uh, that can hurt. Uh, So much worse when it's someone who's close to you, someone you thought was a friend or someone who loved you and then they've all of a sudden turned on you because you've become a Christian. And the scoffing is designed to make you feel like you're so stupid for being sucked in to such obviously dark age beliefs, putting you down because you're so easily led and you're so childish. Uh, I got invited by one of our 8 o'clock ladies to go and meet with her and her husband who's an atheist. Uh, This is a little while ago and we got there. She said, honey, come down. Uh, The minister's here to see you. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, But anyway, he came down and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, what do you believe? I don't believe nothing. That's what the smart people believe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, only stupid people believe in uh, heaven and Jesus and God and all that kind of stuff and, and stuff. I said, stupid people. Yeah, only stupid people. Only stupid people. I said, I'm pretty sure your wife's a retired teacher. She's got, how many degrees you got? Uh, she said, three. I said, I've got a couple myself. Um, you know, we're not stupid. I mean, whatever you may think, <laughs> kind of thing, you say, oh, I didn't mean you two. Um, <laughs> well, who did you mean? You know, <laughs> And the scoffing's all around us. It comes from the academic atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens. It comes from TV stars like Stephen Fry. QI I find very interesting, except uh, there's just this needling and putting down of Christians all the time and how stupid you would be to believe in Jesus. It comes in the newspapers, like the editorial in the newspaper, comparing belief in God to belief in Santa Claus, saying, believing in one is just as childish and stupid as believing in the other. Let me read. We learned that Santa was a fake when we caught Dad in the act filling the stockings. And Santa's other miracles are all shams and lies designed to uh, keep the shopping magnates turning a buck. And isn't that just like God? We know the miracles never happened. And God is only promoted by greedy churches making money off his false name. The scoffing comes in the classrooms of our schools. Uh, The polite put-downs of teachers at parent-teacher interviews, which I am about to discover, I guess. I've heard this from many Christians. 
uh, telling you, the parent, to control your child's enthusiasm for Jesus. Uh, or I have experienced this one, the teacher giggling at the back of the scripture lesson, sitting in and just go, <laughs> when you, the, you, the scripture teacher, is teaching something. Uh, it comes in the conversations that we have at home or with our friends who put us down because they think we need such an emotional crutch as Jesus to keep us going. It's all the same. That's the scoffing that Peter promised would come. And while they might like to think that their scoffing comes from their superior, enlightened state, that they have seen so clearly what we have been so stupid not to see, it really comes from something else, something far more wretched inside. See it there in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Their scoffing, their mockery doesn't come because they're actually smarter than us Christians or because they can see the evidence more clearly than we can. It comes from their desire to live for themselves and not be answerable to God. The average layabout, Westy, who's too invested in his four-wheel drive, his remote control car and his weekly drunken one-night stands with women down at the club, who uses God's name as a swear word like it's going out of fashion, who mocks the Christians for being stupid just so he can justify himself. It's not innocent. Or the middle-class housewife who's so caught up in the local gossip and driving the kids around in the SUV trying to live her life through them that she can't be bothered having a serious conversation about life and God and the point of it all because it might put her too much outside of her comfort zone. Or the more academic uh, like world-class philosopher Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist. And he's a fascinating fellow. He's really interesting to read. If you ever want to read some highfalutin stuff, uh, he's most famous for saying, well, you probably never heard of him, but you may have heard him saying, life may not only be meaningless, but absurd. But why is he an atheist? Is it the evidence? Is it because he's really worked out existence with his great mind and it is a big mind that he has to conclude that there's no God and life has no meaning? Well, no. Listen to his own words. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, at least he's honest enough to admit that his atheism isn't based in fact or science or reason, but in his wishes in his desires, in particular in his fears. He doesn't want to be answerable to creator. It makes him very scared. He wants to find meaning here in this world, but he can't because it takes a creator to give meaning. And so he just decides that life has to be absurd. And yet there's still that smug sense of superiority when he says he's uneasy that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people he knows are religious believers. Because he's thinking intelligent people shouldn't believe stuff like that. Even though I believe what I believe, not because it's, I've worked it out, but because I don't want it to be true. 
No matter who the scoffer is, it all comes from, it wells up from a heart that does not want there to be a God to answer to so that I can live how I want, do what I want, even die how I want. It is a spiritual problem. It is not innocent. And so if you're enduring the scoffing or mocking of other people, don't be put off. Don't be put off. And don't think that the way to win them over is going to be by intellectual arguments either. The problem is not intellectual. It is hard hearts and the answer is prayer because it's only in the end the Holy Spirit who can humble the heart and change a man such as that. He's done it many times in the past. Don't give up under the scoffing. Get praying. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now notice that they deliberately forget. It's not that they accidentally forgot. Oh, yeah, sorry, there's just too much to learn. <laughs> or that the person who taught them you know, scripture in school mumbled through that lesson so they didn't understand it. But they deliberately forget. It's willful. They just don't want to face up to it. And for that reason, they're culpable in God's eyes. What do they deliberately forget when they mock Jesus' return to judge? They deliberately forget that God has destroyed the world once already in the flood, which we looked at for several weeks in a row just recently. They deliberately forget that God made the world and he used the very forces of nature which he created to bring it all undone. He spoke and the waters came and all but wiped out life on this planet, men, women, children, animals, plants. And it was only by God's mercy on Noah and his family that meant that anyone was saved. But it's that same powerful word of God which made the world in the first place and which commanded the flood to come which will command the judgment day that is yet to come, where there will be fire and not water, as was promised all through the Old Testament and through the New. They dismiss the past, and so they mock the future that God has promised. So why is it that we let it all get to us? Why does it hurt so much when people take the mickey out of us or put us down or say we're stupid? Why does it hurt? I think partly because the mockery seems to have an element of truth. Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. <laughs> Said he would, but it's been an awfully long time. 2,000 years and still counting, still no Jesus. Maybe he's a dud. Maybe he's not good for it. Maybe it's not really going to happen. Well, not at all. Judgment will come. Take heart. Verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Four things Peter says we should know and not forget that we should remember about Jesus and Judgment Day. Number one, Jesus doesn't count time like we do. I mean, if you were the eternal being who made the universe, who wound up, flung the stars into motion, crafted all the intricate details of everything, a couple of thousand years, nothing. We're like little kids to God sometimes. You know? Everything has to be done now. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? Sounds like a Simpsons episode. Um, everything seems to take a lot longer um, to kids than we think it does. For us, time is shorter and shorter. And partly that's because the proportion of time that a year is, the older we get, is smaller. When I was one year old, the next year of my life took 100% more of my life. Now that I'm turning 42 this year, next year, well, that's 142nd. Yeah, it's <laughs> such a small percentage now. Um, each year seems to go faster and faster. The things of 15 years ago only seem to have happened yesterday. Uh, the space shuttle disaster, the first one. Uh, some of us were around for that. <laughs> um, 1984, more than 30 years ago. The millennium bug in the computers that was going to throw us all back into the Stone Age 15 years ago. Telling God he's a bit slow because it's been a couple of thousand years. It'll get some perspective, buddy. You know, it's only been a couple of days to him. Second thing he says, he says, God's not being slow at all. There's a reason for the delay. That is because he is being patient and kind. He's allowing more time for the gospel to go out, for people to hear of the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ and to have the opportunity to be saved. That's why he's not come back yet, because he cares that as many people as possible, as many people as he has chosen to save, will be saved. Now, that puts things into even more perspective, especially for us Christians here now. See, what time are we living in? We often want to ask, what time are we living in? The most important thing to know about the time that we live in is not that it's the 21st century, nor is it that it's the age of technology and that everyone's got iPads and you know fancy things. And the most important thing to know about the time that we're living in is that it's borrowed time. It's borrowed time, time that God has allowed so just a few more people can come to Christ. Time that God has given us to get out there with his gospel and proclaim it as urgently and as loudly as we can because the night will soon be over and he will come. Third thing he says, you cannot know the date of his coming. All through the ages, people have tried to nail Jesus down to a particular date, but just as Jesus himself said, you will never know. He didn't even know. Only the Father knows. You think you know more than Jesus, the one who's going to come and destroy the earth? You can't. Good luck to you. He will come when he's good and ready, or when the Father's good and ready, and not when the world is good and ready. Just like a thief, he says. Who doesn't come when they know that you're sitting just inside the door with your shotgun? Right? The thief knew you were sitting there. He's not going to bust in at that point in time, is he? You're a stupid thief to do that. He's going to wait till you've gone out or gone to sleep. Uh, come when you least expect it. So it is with Jesus. And finally, he says his coming will utterly destroy this creation. So don't get too attached. 
to the things that are here. Now, there's a whole lot, this is just an aside, there's a whole lot of bad teaching, I reckon, going around Sydney at the moment in churches saying that heaven is just going to be a slightly improved version of what we have on earth now. And they're kind of playing to people's environmental concerns. Uh, and they're saying things like, you know, what you do with that tree over there uh, or that rainforest will carry over into heaven. You want that rainforest to be in heaven? Don't cut it down now. Uh, save it. Now, I'm not saying go and be an environmental vandal. There's lots of good reasons for caring for the planet we live on, but face facts, it is all going to burn. The very elements will be ripped apart. So catastrophic and violent is the fire of judgment that Jesus will bring. Here's the words. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I mean, I've been known for being a sceptic on climate change and things in the past and that may or may not be right and whether it's true or not uh, doesn't really matter. But I do believe in global warming because it's all going to burn. <laughs> Peter says, remember what the prophets said, remember what Jesus said, remember what the apostles said. Remember what they predicted, the end of the world, Jesus' return. He says, reflect on the future. Jesus' judgment is coming. We don't know when, but he is coming and he's only delaying now so that more may be saved, but he is coming. But how do that past and that future change what we do here and now? How does that view of history and the future of the world change life for us as Christians now? Well, verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people desert, just as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Mind you, I find it slightly encouraging that even the great apostle Peter found Paul's letters hard to read at times. <laughs> But what does Peter say we should be like as Christians now, knowing that Jesus is coming with fire to judge the world that's in rebellion to him? First of all, he says, sort yourself out with God. Right? If you're not a Christian yet, become a Christian. You've got to trust the Lord Jesus. He's died that you might have forgiveness. You might be right with him at his expense, not yours. Sort yourself out with God. Or he says to us as Christians, he says, be spotless, blameless and at peace with him. So I take it if there are sins... In your life, that you know about, that you need to deal with, if there are secrets you are keeping from your friends, from your family, come and sort them out. There is nothing that can't be dealt with. Sort it out. If there are people you've hurt, Go and apologise to them. Make it up with them. If there are addictions that you are struggling with, be it alcohol or pornography or bad relationships, it's time to confront them, it's time to deal with them. Put them to bed. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. 
Sort yourself out with God. Second thing, help sort others out with God. Use the time for its purpose. This is the only reason we are still here is because the Lord is delaying so the more might be saved. That is the point of life now for us as Christians, sorting people out with God, praying for them, begging the Lord of the harvest, as Jesus said, to send out more workers into the harvest. You know, begging God for more scripture teachers to go to the schools. Begging God for the migrant communities pouring into our area, not because we're cultural imperialists, but because Jesus is the Lord of all. Begging God for the average suburbanites living in blissful and willful ignorance. Begging God for revival to break out, that his word might go forth, that people might come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. And in talking, pray, talk. Number three, don't be led astray. Don't give in to the mockery of the scoffers. Let them scoff. Don't retaliate or repay evil for evil. Instead, pray for them. Keep holding out the word of the gospel. You never know when God might call someone like Thomas Nagel to himself. He did exactly that with C.S. Lewis 70 years ago. Atheist philosopher, big gun, turned to become a great Christian thinker. And just think, he saved you. That means God can save anyone. Lastly, don't give in to the lies and distortion that inevitably come. There are and will always be false teachers as we saw last week. And as Peter sums up, he warns us about uh, them again as those who ignore and distort the Bible. He says, be on your toes, keep learning from the Master himself through the apostles, through the apostles uh, in the Holy Scriptures. Peter's final instructions. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Father, please protect us from the scoffing, from the lies. Help us to keep remembering that you are good for your word. We pray if there are any here that need to sort things out with you, that tonight might be the night where that starts. Be it coming to Christ or be it dealing with sins that have uh, been going for now some time or that we've been hiding. Help us to put them to bed. We pray for those we know and love, those we don't know, we're yet to meet those we dislike around us, that you might forgive them and bring them to Jesus. Help us to be praying, begging you to send out your word to bring forgiveness and healing. We pray for ourselves that we won't be led astray and we pray that we might understand the time which we live in and we might use it for its purpose, to honour you, to reach out to a lost world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.